Hey everybody, you're about to listen to another brand new episode of The Drip, but we wanted to let you know that uh, we recorded this episode back in November. It took us a little while to get it all edited and ready to go, uh, but now it is and we're dropping it. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, we had some things going on over the past couple of months, but everything's okay now and we are ready to record again. So we hope we'll be putting out some new episodes the end of February or early March. Um, but for now, here's this episode to keep you satisfied until the new ones drop. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back again to The Drip, um, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing wherever we happen to be hanging out. And right now we're in Todd's place, so thank you, Todd. Thank you. Um, I'm Anita Chikator, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. I am Adriana Estel. I am a mere participant in the show, not the host. <laughs> Is that a dig? You want to be the host? No, the host. Are we like a band who's about to break up? Is that what's happening? She's Yoko. <laughs> I am so glad Anita's the host. No lie. Um, I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. And I'm Crystal Moten, a mere background singer. <laughs> Who also happens to be a historian in her free time. (laughs) And I research black women and economic justice in the urban Midwest. Yeah. Todd Lawrence, University of St. Thomas. Nice. Good job, Todd. (laughs) It's a struggle. It's a struggle for Todd. All right. So in this episode, we are discussing Colson Whitehead's latest novel, The Nickel Boys. Whitehead is an American novelist, and his most well-known novel is probably The Underground Railroad, which won him both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, which apparently is a very rare thing. Um, He is also, just like the last author we talked about, a MacArthur Fellow. We're reading the work of, like, geniuses Geniuses. all the time. Geniuses. 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 Um, The Nickel Boys is set at a fictionalized version of a real-life reform school called the Dozier School for Boys. And this real-life reform school in Florida opened in 1900, and it closed in, hmm, I say it's like 2011, but I don't know if that's actually true. I think it was like a little bit earlier than that. So I think I got my dates wrong. Shockingly, um, not that long ago. Not that long ago. Is, yeah. That's true. That's true. I, I mean, it was yeah. in the like ni- uh, 20th century. But after decades of allegations against the school for allowing the beatings, rapes, torture, and even murder of students by guards and employees, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement began an investigation of the claims in 2010 followed by additional investigations by the U.S. Department of Justice in 2011 and an ongoing forensic investigation by the University of Florida, uh, sorry, University of South Florida, which began in 2012. So the University of South Florida investigation discovered some uh, 55 graves on the school grounds by December 2012 and has continued to identify uh, potential grave sites. So... Um, and spoiler alert, as always, uh, before we dig in that it's a reminder that we discuss our books, we talk about everything, and especially in this book, there's a pretty substantial twist, so I would recommend that you read the book before you listen to this podcast, but you know, whatever. Um, because as you know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective, so consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're all about spoilers and not about summaries. No No summaries. No summaries. Uh, since I... Uh, Since I brought up The Underground Railroad, which, like I said, is probably his most well-known novel, 
I think I was pretty surprised by how different the tone and the format of this book is, right? It's much more realistic, much more straightforward, even though it does go back and forth in two timelines as well. So just curious to maybe start there and see what folks um, thought about that, those differences. Yeah, um, I just uh, I just got done teaching the Underground mm. Railroad in a, a, a 21st century black novel class just mm. a week or so ago. And, uh, and I've also read a lot of Colson Whitehead. And so I, I think that's one reason why I like his work a lot is that it can be wildly different in mm. tone and approach. Um, you know, like if you go from the intuitionist, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, sort of the speculative kind of world building exercise about elevator inspectors in some unnamed city, mm. which is probably New York City in the 19, like 30s-ish or something like that, right? Mm. And then you have something like Sag Harbor, which is a coming of age story, you know, about a, a young teenage black kid coming of age and sort of Martha's Martha's Vineyard. And what's the zombie one? The uh, zone one. Zone one. Yeah, right. zone one, mm. which I never finished. Um, <laughs> and it's like so. It's like the it's the zombie book that angered people who like zombie books. Oh. Um, oh. And but for me, it was like I just couldn't. Like I never could have finished zombies. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I was sort of like uh, I don't particularly like zombies, and I can't finish <laughs> it. But. Um, I, ha- I had a grad student write an a essay about it one time, and I read that essay, and I th- and what he <laughs> argued about it, I thought, oh, I should read this. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe maybe I'll finish it one day. Um, but yeah, so the Nickel Boys, I-, I was saying this to you before we started recording, that on some days I think the Nickel Boys is a better book than mm-hmm. the Underground Railroad. On the next day, I think the Underground Railroad is better. Um, I think a lot for me, it just sort of depends like whatever Colson Whitehead book I'm reading at the time. I like a lot. I just love his writing. Mm. I think he's, uh, he's, I think what I like the most about him is, um, he can like, even in this book, this is, this is not a funny book, but it is like, it has a, like a cerbic bite to it. I think Mm. somehow, you know, it's, it, it has this sort of way of critiquing the world that it's creating. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, I can't even really explain how it does it. I mean, sometimes in his books, he does it by being really smart-ass, and it's right out there in the open. Um, but this book, it's it's sort of much more reserved tone. It's a very it's a difficult subject matter. Yeah. Um, and yet, there's ways in which this book, I didn't find this book to be as unpleasant to read as I mm. thought it was going to be whenever I you know knew what the subject matter was going to be. Mm. Um, and I don't know what you guys think about that, but... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you guys respond. Well, I didn't, ex- I, you know, actually going into the book, I, you know, I kn- the Underground Railroad just wasn't on my mind. And so I didn't even think, oh, let me compare, mm-hmm. you know, the narrative style or let me just, you know, mm-hmm. kind of think of the comparisons between the two. I just went into it. Honestly, what I went into it, I went into it dreading it because I had been told falsely that the book was going to be kind of a fictionalized account of the Scottsboro Boys story. And I just really wasn't ready to, or feeling like I wanted to read what I refer to as struggle fiction. Um, So I wasn't really excited to read it. But then when I actually opened it and read what it was actually about, I was I actually was really dreading it mm-hmm. um and so and I think for me I just kept expecting horror upon horror upon horror and that's 
what you get. <laughs> um, even though it's very well written horror, this 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 you know this this to me is like the horror story in the realm of like um, Get Out. I, I was know? just going to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I think um, this is um, a, the kind of. Uh, violence um mm-hmm. that is every day mm-hmm. and um so under right like it's he underwrites it um in the sense that like it's not exaggerated um but it just permeates everything yeah. of this school um and i think that's a it's a really amazing kind of accomplishment actually for a writer right to have a book which is basically so very like depicting terrible painful stories yeah. with such um you know it's the banality of evil mm-hmm. right um mm-hmm. these institutions filled with um men who keep clan magazines in the basements of their home mm-hmm. and that's a like a, it's a metaphor that works for the entire novel mm-hmm. right that, yeah, like right. this is a place in which on the top floor they're repainting their pagodas and in the basement, they have, mm-hmm. you know, like storehouses of, of clan magazines. Um, but I did find like I for me, the twist was really meaningful in thinking about like what I felt about this novel, because um, Underground Railroad, I loved from beginning to end. There was something about the conceit of, you know, an actual Underground Railroad mm-hmm. um, and what that uh, how that was then complicated, right? And it wasn't necessarily escape right away, but I thought it was just so productive to think about that as a metaphor mm-hmm. or think about that metaphor as something more more material rather. Yeah. Um, and this one I was like, okay, yeah, this is, I mean, this is a, 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 it's a really powerful story, but it's so straightly told, right? It's so realistic. Um, and, you know, for most of the novel that I'm like, okay, you know, like this is, this is terrible, but at least Elwood survives because we get two central boys in this story. We get Elwood and Turner, um, who become, you know, as friends as you can be in a school like this. And I kept on just thinking to myself, well, at, at least Elwood gets out of this because early on in these two stories that we have, um, these two separate lines, we get an older person who it's very easy to assume as a reader is Elwood. And um, about five pages from the end of the novel, like you find out it's not, you find out it's Turner, you find out Elwood died in a terrible, horrible way. And I sobbed for the rest of the five pages. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also what convinced me that this is a really masterful book because that shift of like actually having to like rethink all of the events that you've moved through and this voice that you've trusted because you knew it was Elwood and now you still trust it, but you have, it's Turner. Right. And he's doing the same thing at the end of the book as he thinks about going back to the school now that they're unearthing these children, these, these skeletons, right? So the, the book asks us to visit skeletons and to actually do an honest kind of excavation and Turner, like throughout the novel, has basically refused to do that until the very end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that twist also made me rethink, right? I mean, I was also like devastated when it was like actually Turner and not Elba. But I was like, why am I as, why am I devastated, right? I mean, they both should have survived, right? Yeah. And yeah. the fact that I, then it made me think about like, I think there's ways in which Elwood's story of like how he ends up there, to me, right? And this was like, is like a more, 
horrific like injustice, right? Because he was like riding in a car, right? He mm. literally had done nothing mm-hmm. yeah. wrong, and then it made me think about like, am I just actually somehow making this like judgment about Turner versus like Elwood and like who you know what I mean? Who it's deserves like, to who deserved to, exactly like who deserved to like survive or who does whose story am I like more attached to? And that kind of made me like. It's a little bit of my own reaction. But Anita, I mean, yeah, you can question that, but also the narrative really invites us into that space. I think that's we are wedded to Elwood from the very beginning of the novel because it's a story that starts. I think I could, yeah, I think were the narrative structure different, or the emphasis in the narrative was on Turner, I could like him just as much. But I think I think the book. Yeah, connects us to Elwood because the story is mostly from his point of view. Um, And there's, there's, oh, go ahead. But I think that's like the genius of to me, right? Because I was thinking about this line at the end on 209 where he says, so he's talking, um, it's like all of the men on the website were white who spoke for the black boys. Mm -hmm. But also it's like interesting to me that it's like because it's like Elwood's like specific story that we hear, Mm -hmm. that it's like somehow like we're like connected to him as opposed to like all the other boys that we don't hear about. Right. Right. And that we're not as connected. Right. There's like something that I feel like Whitehead is doing there yeah. with like this notion of like who we get connected to and like why does why is it that we need to hear these specific stories in order to feel a particular kind of way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know if I agree. Mm. Um I mean I think you're right that Elwood is a recognizable figure that he probably decided um, was a really good entry point, yeah. right? It, because he's a site of injustice. And there's right. something about that that, um, you know, and, and he, he's just so sincere. And, um, you know, but but there are moments when we get Turner. And um, I don't know, I found those moments really lovely, actually, like, and mm. funny. When we see Turner watching Elwood and he's like, he is so, like, how did he get to be so earnest? Yeah. Like, you know, he's like... He's kind of a rube or something. Like, he's a, right. he's a, a right. naive, you know, like... Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's why I think I was saying before, I mean, like, Turner seems more, the more realistic character to me. Like, mm. the the guy that I would sort of throw my lot in I, with, I think, rather than, than Elwood. Yeah, I mean, like, he Elwood's destined for trouble because he doesn't recognize the character the, of the world. Right. Because he sincerely mm. thinks that if he writes this letter, mm-hmm. right. that it will... I mean, it's but it's also beautiful, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is the moment when he sends it off and he's thinking about it through, you know, a, a Martin Luther King Jr. Um, lens? Right, right. 73, right. maybe? Because <clears throat> um, he says, uh, Turner Hoft, what's in these things? And... I've been writing everything down, Elwood said. Everything what? The deliveries, the yard work, and the chores, the names of everybody, um, and the dates, all of community service. And why would you do something like that? Knowing why, but curious, to, curious as to how his friend would phrase it. You told me. No one, can, no one else can get me out of here but me. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever listens to me. Why you got to start? Uh, is, does, he, <laughs> does he come to MLK at some point? Um, I was I thinking remember, actually but... on page 175, yeah. so you got me close enough, honestly. <laughs> um, he says, he had to trust a stranger to do the right thing. It was impossible, like loving the one who wanted to destroy you. But that was the message of the movement, to trust in the right. ultimate decency that lived in every human heart. And like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but reading that moment, I mean, I was hopeful, but also I was like, oh, Elwood. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, he's, I think, so he's, I think what's interesting, you know, is he's, he's obsessed with this album of right. Martin Luther King uh, speeches. Right. 
Um, and he listened to them over and over and over again. And this album, uh, I forget what the title of the album is, um, something Zion Hill or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, uh, it's from like 1962 or 63 or so, 62, I think, right? Yeah, so, Zion Hill. Right, so it's actually, so it's before sort of Martin sort of starts to see mm-hmm. like how the, not, not only is that how the world really works, but when he started to sort of, um, speak about the injustice of the world, right? And in, yeah. in, in, in not just like, like there's poverty and there's and there's war. It started to sort of broaden his sort of view. So I think in a way, Elwood is sort of stuck with this um, way of seeing the world that um, that's closed off to kind of learning from the world itself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all these things happen to him. I mean, when when he's so he gets in nickel. Be- like you said, because yeah. he's going, he's he's, he's hitchhiking, trying to go yeah. take a college class, yeah. and he right. gets a ride from this guy, and it turns out that the car is stolen, and he gets sent to nickel, right? Yeah. N- he has has done nothing wrong. Okay. Is trying, is aspiring to do well. I mean, that's all. He, that's you know, in that first section, like the dish drying contest right. and everything, yeah. like everything that he gets into is because he's too earnest, he's too <laughs> eager. He, too trusting. He's right? too trusting, right? Yeah. And, and he ends up in sense. this place because of that, yeah. right? And so, but I would think like most people would be like, uh, you know what? The world is, you know, trash if this happened to me, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, no, most yeah, people yeah, would yeah, learn yeah. from that, but even yeah. that, he's he doesn't <laughs> learn from. And then he gets into the White House. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, the right second, off the, the bat. Second day yeah. he's there. Yeah. Because he was trying right. to like intervene in the fight. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's you know that's when he really sort of meets Turner because uh, Turner gets uh, has himself sent to right. the infirmary by right. <laughs> eating right. the soap flakes because he wants a day off or something. And that's when they first start talking, and you see there the 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 difference between their two worldviews, and still. You know, um, El- Elwood hasn't changed, right? Right, but I'm struck by the fact that you sort of said that he's stuck in this time, right? But obviously Whitehead chose, like, I mean, I did look mm-hmm. it up quickly, and the school actually did not close till 2011, like the real school okay. that it's, like, based oh. on. Okay. Um, but, like, he chose this particular historical period to, like, set this book in. So I'm sort of right. curious about, like, mm-hmm. what he's trying to, like, get us to think about through Elwood, right? Like, why is Elwood this kind of optimistic, maybe somewhat unrealistic, um, like, guy, right? And I think he's, like, puzzling through. So it's a little bit before the part you read, so 172 with Martin Luther King. This is Martin Luther King's words. Um, And he says, Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities after midnight hours and drag us out onto some wayward road and beat us and leave us half dead, and we will still love you. But... But be ye sure that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. And this is back to the narration. The capacity to suffer. Elwood, all the nickel boys existed in that capacity, breathed in it, ate in it, dreamed in it. That was their lives now. Otherwise, they would have been punished. The beatings, the rapes, the unrelenting winnowing of themselves, they endured. But to love those who destroyed them, to make that leap, we will meet your... And this is back to MLK's words. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I was, uh, Crystal, I was going to like bring you into the 1962 conversation, but let me just say one literary thing, and then I'm going to throw it to you. Because you're reading that section, which is basically a section that encourages us to be as Christ-like as possible, right? Turn the other cheek, you know, take this punishment and still love, which is exactly what, you know, in the Bible, God, in, you know, 
asks Jesus to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, when, um, when Elwood is shot, he um, is running away from Hunter and I can't remember who else. And if you guys help me find the exact spot, um, that would be dies. great. But he basically throws his arms out. Yeah, 201. Thank you. I knew someone else would have it faster than I would. It's still taking me a little while to um, find it. Oh, so I see it. See it. Yeah. Um, Harper pulled the trigger. Elwood's arms went wide, hands out as if testing the solidity of the walls of a long corridor, one he had traveled through for a long time and which possessed no visible terminus. He stumbled forward two steps and fell into the grass. And so this moment that Turner sees as he's looking behind him, hoping that Elwood is making it, is, you know, Jesus on the cross. Mm. Um, And it's a martyrdom story of, which, you know, we start out too with these boys who are more trouble, you know, or their trouble even in death, um, Mm. because it's these bodies that are, um, that turn us to some better path, right? That are the sacrifice made to kind of um, set the country to right somehow. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's a question about whether that's actually a reasonable hope at the end, or whether that's just a, you know, a, an offering, a possibility. So anyway, Crystal, I wanted to get back to this 1962 question and. What, what did, what I guess thoughts on like why he like chose to set it in like this particular moment in history, right? Of these two well, boys, because I feel like he could have chose any time in that. Could have gone back period. to that nineteen forty, and yeah. he does that kind of move yeah. back to forties and twenties. And I don't have any special insight on that, but the, what I was thinking in regards to the use of this particular, um, this particular version of King mm-hmm. is maybe there's a critique about. Um, the actual capacity of King's rhetoric during this time to actually transform American society, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of, you know, Elwood's belief in, um, you know, what King is saying and in his repeatedly going back to these messages to Mm -hmm. kind of gird himself in this struggle that he sees himself in but ultimately what happens is it that it, it it's a failure right mm-hmm. that these these messages fail to save him hmm. um and so i i wonder if colson is you know this is a larger critique about king um you know this version of of king um i don't know uh, but that's what it seems mm-hmm. seems like to me and then also <laughs> kind of thinking about if we connect this then to the moment we're in now, it makes me ask the question, what type of radical rhetoric do we need for black freedom today, mm-hmm. right? If we're critiquing um, King in this way, what does this say about our our current moment that this book is being read in? Um, right. So, like, uh, I'm trying to think how to respond to what you're saying, Crystal, because this makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think I when I read this book, I thought of it not necessarily as a critique, whether it's of, you know, 1962 Martin Luther King or or even Elwood, like as if they're doing something wrong, but more a more a sort of 
um, drawing of how the world responds to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and I think like, you know, I was trying to, you know, you're a historian, so you could speak to it better about the ways that King sort of changed his approach and rhetoric in the last parts of his life. But what I do know is that on the night before he died, he said, basically, I'm going to die. Like, they're going, this world is going to right. destroy me because of what I'm trying to do, right? And I think that's the that's what Elwood doesn't understand, right? Like, mm-hmm. Turner's trying to tell him that, mm-hmm. right? That this world, will it'll just eat us all. It'll grind us all to dust. That's what it does. But Elwood doesn't seem to understand that, right? And so, I mean, in the end, to me, like, the thing that's sort of tragic but, you know, ex- you know, understandable and maybe even expected is that Turner is the one who survives because yeah. um, mm-hmm. that, that's what happens. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. Like, you have to, mm-hmm. if you don't see the, the bullet coming at you, there's no way to get out of the way of it. You know, if you if you can't sort of envision that well, which will destroy kind of you, it's actually random, right? Like Turner could have caught that bullet. Like right. it doesn't True. even matter True. in some yeah. ways. But I guess I'm saying right. like symbolically, right? Like yeah. it's not as if you know Turner does right. something except for it's his 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 position in the world and the way that he thinks about the world. I think I is it actually. Though? Like I... I think it's actually like kind of random, right? I mean, I feel like he's saying well, it doesn't well, actually the... matter. It doesn't well, okay. matter like whether that. you have like an optimistic or a pessimistic view. Like you're a black boy. Like, that is what's going to happen to you. Like, that's how I... Which way you think it's more dangerous to go through life as a black boy? Like, with your eyes not open or with your eyes open? I get that, but I think he's kind of saying that there are forces that... We'll get you anyway. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. I think I, that's and let, true. let me add something to both of you. Don't fight. No. We're, not, we're not fighting. We're, fighting. we're, we're discussing. discussing. Yeah, very loudly. Very loudly. Um, I will say that it's very clear that the novel thinks their fates are intertwined. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. That they that they can never be separate. Right. It's not like you can choose one path or the other. But in some ways, like it's inevitably going to be both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that you know, we it, Turner did not have to go and save Elwood. One, he right. was like in that true. solitary. Um, confinement and they were going to take him out back and he was going to die right and Turner like basically decided no like this foolish boy I am going to try and get him out of here Mm -hmm. because Elwood got to him because Elwood got to him with like these ideals and um, yeah what it meant to be free not free physically but free in mind mm-hmm. right yeah. um, and then you know it could have been either of them that was shot when they run away that's one thing that's really clear like it's just chance mm-hmm. that Elwood is a little bit behind mm-hmm. and then you know when El- uh, when Elwood slash J- uh, Jack at the end kind of decides to go to Tallahassee again he talks about how he's gonna go to the grave and tell Elwood that he had turned into a man he thought Elwood would have been proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, so his his whole life has been, even as he escaped to New York and you know like tried to get away from it all, yeah. it's always been about Elwood. He took Elwood's name. He took that identity. He told his stories. Yeah. Um, and then at the very end, right, like he's here in this place that he's never been. You know this restaurant and it turns out he's in the richmond hotel which is where elwood's story starts for us um and so i think you know it's really like i mean what i found tragic was not that turner lived and not elwood Mm -hmm. but that i had like imagined it was going to be elwood and discovering that it was a jack had to kind of revise all of my understandings of what it meant to come home and what this death was Mm -hmm. there had been miswritings 
that maybe are inevitable in a system that is so corrupt and so violent. Um, and I mean, I think like the, the novel basically says, do your research people, right? Like, you know, all of you, but especially white people do your research and, and pay attention to these stories and don't like mix up people, right? right? Like the, the very deliberate kind of ways in which people have to hide mm -hmm. so that they ha have freedom. Nobody should have to do that. I, I yeah. I think too that, you know, to go back to this notion of the kind of banality of evil and, you know, it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that that term is used to describe the Holocaust, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. there's a kind of um, illusionish kind of thing happening here because mm. in the whole town is implicated right. in, right. is yep. involved with the school, right? The yes. kids are out, they're doing they work, chores, yeah. they're doing, yeah, everybody knows. All these supplies are making their yeah. way into the town. Right. So, and and we never see them deprived of food, right? Like that's not the the way he tells the story. Mm -hmm. We just know that their food is not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he they, he does mention that some of the boys look malnourished. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we hear um, about ringworm, right. but he doesn't do exactly. it in this graphic way. You know what right. I mean? We hear about it mainly through how the town flourishes while. Because of the, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it and it reminds me of you know mm -hmm. like the when these towns you know near Auschwitz or some other you know camps claimed that they didn't know what was happening, mm -hmm. right? And right. It, right. And and there's no way that this town can didn't know. Yeah, and yeah. and really like you said, I think it was you earlier who was talking about, you know, the basement and the upstairs mm -hmm. and I and I thought I didn't say this, but I thought this place is the basement of America, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's it's all of our yeah, it's, it's, it's all, all of our, all our houses. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, we all and we know it's down there. Mm -hmm. But we look away or we try to act like it's not happening, right? I really like the way you used sleight of hand, by the way. Like, I think that's a really good way to talk about this narrative structure, right? That the the novel, it's realistic, but there's also a way in which it hides, like, the, the cards. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not just talking about the Elwood Jack thing, but more about this way in which you, uh, you think you understand the structure and the cost of the structure, right? And you, very early on, you're like, oh, yeah, like, these white supremacist assholes. Um, but... Later, you realize, wow, it's like this whole—not just the town; it's the whole system. The mm -hmm. whole system, mm -hmm. like when the inspectors, whoever, come mm -hmm. right, and they're like putting on a whole show for them. Um, but I wanted to go back to something you said about like what it's telling white people to do, and it—I feel like it's like story after story. We're just talking about what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and like how that was buried, right? Literally, mm -hmm. sometimes, yeah. Right, but it's just like how much of this like uncovering a needs to happen. But B, like, I'm not convinced that, I don't know, right? Are white people, like, being convinced by this novel or by anything else? Because there's so many <laughs> things that's asking them to do that, right? And I feel like it's just, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's... Are you questioning <laughs> Well, also because I just... Well, also because I just... <laughs> no. Because I read Tennessee. I'm also reading Tennessee Code's Eight Years in Power. And he has this yeah. line in there about, like, why are we expecting white people to be, somehow be better people than people? Mm. Right, in general. Right? He's like, why would we expect white people, compared to, like, every other, you know, group in society or in the world in history, to, like, act against their self-interest, right? And to act against, yeah. right? So, I don't know. Like, I think that was also in my head when I was, like, thinking about, like, what you just said, right? It's just, like, how many stories of 
right? Like, how many stories do we need of, like, these things happening? But I think what the interesting thing, and it, it wasn't just the, I mean, obviously the black boys got the worst of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was they're actually, white, they're but they were also white boys, right? Mm-hmm. I think there was, like, a Mexican-American kid. Yeah, Jaime. Who, yes. like, yeah. who went back on, and like, forth. Went back and forth. Jamie, or maybe Jaime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was also, like, interesting to me that it wasn't, like, it was a place that was actually weirdly, like, interracial in this, like, right like as a educational mm-hmm. in quotes um institution so it's also kind of thinking about that right that it was actually they were willing to put up with that mm-hmm. in order to like also have this other right like terrible horrible thing going right. on there did well, any did any of you look up the website for the actual historical group the um, I did for Dozier? not do that um because I yeah damn ever you don't have google ever she's like i'm boycotting google Um, well you didn't even need google because in his acknowledgments whitehead gives all these different (laughs) sources that he used and the name of the website is officialwhitehouseboys.org and one thing that struck me as soon as i got to that website um without even necessarily because i read it before i finished the novel i'm sorry so i hadn't gotten to jack's point about like all of these Turner? yeah why well, you keep saying jack you're is his first name jack or something y- yes oh, is it okay. i yeah. thought so too yeah. so it's jack oh, okay. turner okay because okay. yeah. okay. right. yeah. i just kept thinking of it like i just, I just I was thought like, it was jack. Jack. i was like who is she <laughs> talking about you gave me like this like, thank you <laughs> sorry, sorry we remember when it's like the last five minutes i've been like who the hell's jack me too there's that whole moment where he's talking to his wife, Millie, oh. and, and she's like, oh, I'm going to call you Jack. And, the, and oh. she says it several times, okay. right? And he's like, yeah, that started to fit again. That's good. Okay. Okay, sorry. Right. Go, keep, going. keep going. Anyway, so even before Jack says <laughs> all the, the men... I'm going to call him Turner. <laughs> Jack Turner. Well, I'm going to call him Turner. I'm going to call him Turner. <laughs> so even before Jack Turner okay. right. <laughs> goes to the webpage and is like, you know, like all the men there are white. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I had like gone to the acknowledgement and I saw the website and I'm like, oh, I have to go look at that. Mm. And it's still, it's really white. Mm. It's also very, um, this is going to sound terrible because it's a very important website. This is important stories that need to get out, but it's like really hard to navigate. Mm. It's a bad website. It's a bad website is what I'm saying. Is it made by the University of South Florida or was it made by the men? No, this is made by the men. And right, it's, uh, they're telling their stories. There's a page for veterans. They're old men. Many of them are, yeah. Well, they're all going to be, what, over... 45 by now, right? If well, the school closed well, it's in... closed in 2011. It, it really actually was is. true. Yeah, I looked oh it up again. Gosh. Yeah. So, I guess some of them could because be Because that's longer. when the investigation started. So, the first Shanty. investigation started in 2010. So, they closed it and then they're going to sell the land and then they started doing yeah. the excavation yeah. and things like that. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So... Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, um, there's there's ways in which this novel uh, basically does, you know, I think his acknowledgments point to all of these different sources that you could go to right. to um, learn more, including the archaeological uh, uh-huh. dig stuff. Well, you know, like when you say 2011 and we all go like, oh, my God, like, oh, whew, there was a lot of, whew, right. you know, ex- ex- exhaling and things like that, like. I don't know why we are, because there's probably places like this in every state still now, and there's prisons and jails everywhere we know the same thing goes on, you know, like, um, so, you know, know, that goes back to some of the things that you were saying earlier, right? I mean, this is just a sort of another example of a society we live in, which is, which doesn't mind this. Yeah. I mean, of course, people are going to read this book. 
and they're going to be like, oh, my God, in the same way that we're, we're saying that, right? Like, oh, right. good right. Lord, right. how can this happen, right? right. And then we're going to just sort of go about our business knowing, right. really knowing, yeah. you know, happening. that this is happening yeah. everywhere yeah. in this country. Yeah. I mean, this country... Like, I don't even know, I don't, I mean, I don't know what the, the statistics are, but what do you think, like, what percentage of the economy of this country or certain states uh, is because of prisons? It's not right. about states, but there was, like, a story about particular towns, mm-hmm. right? And there's, like, an interesting yeah. story about how in particular towns, like, the prisoner population gets counted in terms of um, representation, but obviously right. the prisoners themselves don't switch, get right? to, uh, yeah, I think so, uh-huh. don't get to vote, right? right. So there's uh, all vote. these, right. like, towns where the economy basically, or, like, it's revived because of these prisons that basically, um, right? I mean, actually, it's, like, very similar to, like, the town that, you know, maybe not quite yep. the same thing, but it's, like, basically you get jobs, you get, right? It's, like, basically it's, like, a reason for the economy right. to like boom right. uh, but then like obviously the folks who are in the prison themselves like don't get represented right so it was a um and maybe you can find that episode and we can link it but I, yeah. so i think even that is like still definitely true mm-hmm. right? I about, guess, yeah. and that just leads me to the to the question like when reading this because when i was reading this because um you know, we keep being brought back to the 1960s and Dr. King. Yeah. You know, I'm reading this as, in essence, historical fiction. Mm. But we know that, you know, the school is open until the 21st century. Right. So I guess the question is, what do we think Colson Whitehead is telling us about how we should read this? Should we read this as historical fiction or should we mm. read this as... A story of now, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. and or I guess both. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. look, I can answer that right away from a literary perspective. Okay. I mean, because we get the two storylines, and one set in the '60s, but the other moves around mm-hmm. um, with uh, you know Elwood slash Jack um, from 1975 to the 1980s, right. and finally up until 2000 and 2012. Yeah, or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Essentially, a contemporary moment. Yeah. Right. So, right. I mean, I think it actually is saying something really um, powerful once you kind of put all the pieces together, right? About the ongoing kind of impact right. of what might have been a short-term, you know, re- you know, like a one-year stay in in Nickel, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but also, right? Like because we get these other stories of other boys and men damaged, kind of floating in and out of his life. Mm-hmm. Like it's just you see the the impact. huge impact, the web of it. And the, and it, the book begins with the present moment, pretty much, yes. right? So right. Yeah. it begins with that even death, the boys are trouble. But that locates us in, in this moment. And then we go yeah. back and we tell the story. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, on a quick uh, note, I simply Googled uh, economic uh, impact of prisons and got these um, disturbing uh, stats. The U.S. locks up um, uh, roughly 700 people per 100,000, which is the second highest of 222 countries. Mm. Nearly one out of every 100 American adults is behind bars, so that doesn't even count the juvenile population. Uh, private correctional facilities were a 4.8 billion industry in mm. 2014, mm. with profits of 629 million. Wow, that's profits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you yeah. see why people don't want to shut them down, yeah. <clears throat> or some people. Yeah. Now that that gives me pause. That right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I think it's an. A, a useful way to think about the novel is the way that it's engaged in these discussions around prison abolition. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, to go back to Crystal's question and sort of uh, 
twisted a little bit. Um, cause again, like I think I, and I, my sort of vision of the world or my way I think about the world is that it's essentially a cruel and uncaring place. Uh, and, well, I mean, I, I'm not saying that people are cruel and uncaring, <coughs> mm-hmm. but I think like generally speaking, the world is cruel and uncaring. Um, you know, I'm kind of like an absurdist or something, you know, and, um, I sort of read this depiction of the world as like, yeah, that's pretty much the world as I understand it, that these stories, these things will happen to these boys, these stories about their bodies being found, the stories will come out about, um, about the, the, the school, we get the stories in this book, and people will say that's terrible, and then they'll just keep, it'll just keep happening, right? Like mm-hmm. that, there basically is no, there is no solution to this, which doesn't mean that we don't still um, care about it and like still try to address these issues, I suppose. Like I'm not that kind of person who's like, the world sucks, so don't do anything. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't want to overestimate the power of one person or 20 people or 20 million people to affect like, you know, significant change in how mm-hmm. things work. Um, Maybe that's possible, but it it hasn't shown itself to be Mm -hmm. super possible, you know, historically speaking. And I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if that's... I'm trying to think a lot about this, like what you said before, Adriana, about the two characters being linked together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the narrative structure of the book does Mm -hmm. that too, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you get the first section, which is all Elwood, yeah. And then the middle section, part two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you actually look at the narr- the narration in the second section, it's um it's a third person narration, but it gives sometimes it's in it Elwood's head. It gets focalized head, in different places. And sometimes yeah. it's in Turner's mm-hmm. head. And so mm-hmm. it sees they're the only mm-hmm. two characters whose head or point of view we no, get. But it right. goes back and forth and cool. it's not like one chapter is one and one chapter is the other. It kind of like it weaves through, and weaves. sometimes it's hard to figure out. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. and then so in the third section, you're you're getting mostly Turner in the mm-hmm. in the present moment, though Jack, not all Jack Turner. Jack Turner. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so so and I think there was a spot. Let's see if I can. I didn't write anything down, so I have to find this. There's this spot where um, right before the start of the third section, um, if I can find it. Oh, this is. Okay, so, yeah, so on 130, um, so, like, yeah, at the end of that, that chapter, right before the, the part three begins, um, Turner thinks of Funtown, Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. which Elwood thought of earlier in the novel, right? And so, so you get, like, a Ryan Turner or something, and it came to him, the amusement park, Funtown, from the TV commercials, the dumb, happy music, the bumper cars, the roller coaster, and the atomic rocket. And, of course, this is the place for Elwood, and that MLK uses in the speech to talk right. about what has what, what black people are denied. Right. Yeah. And it becomes, for Elwood, a kind of, like, um, symbol for what he wants or mm-hmm. desire of what he wants. Mm-hmm. And now here's, here's Turner thinking of it, and then you go to the the third part and that's um where we first get turner as elwood Mm -hmm. right so they sort of like come together and then they are together but i love yeah 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 and i love the way part three you know you think it's elwood 
but it's it's Turner. And then right. like there's a part where um, he meets another uh, yeah. chick, yeah. chick, I think, or yeah, chicky yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Chicky. yeah. Mm-hmm. and we of course think that um, that. I mean, right. I guess we just assume that Chicky thinks it's Elwood, but of course he doesn't. Right. He right. thinks it's Turner, right. and he never, but he never says Turner. Well, but this explains why Turner is so uncomfortable the whole time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Why he, he won't give him his like, car. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He won't yeah. give him the job. We. I yeah. think. Oh, Elwood has sort of like turned mean or something. Exactly. Like, exactly. He's become this capitalist or whatever, and like he right. doesn't care about anyone. But it's that he doesn't want to t- this guy to find out that mm-hmm. he is he's taken. Elwood's um, yeah. identity, right? Right. Um, well, yeah. oh, you were no, go. For I was it. gonna go for a different topic because I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about women in the story mm. um, and gender. So, if you wanted to, okay, let me just really quickly yeah. then give a quote to finish up this part because on page one sixty six, when he's you know talking with Chicky and um, Elwood slash Jack uh, has this moment where he says, you know, all those lost geniuses. Sure, not all of them were geniuses. Uh, Chicky Pete, for example, was not solving special relativity. <laughs> but they had been denied even the special pleasure of being ordinary. Um, and I think, like, you know, like, now going back to that after getting that twist, right? Like, you know, he had really in some ways been denied the possibility of just being Jack. Yeah. Like, his, yeah. his fate, he had to be Elwood. Like, not just to escape, but, like, he had this responsibility mm-hmm. to yeah. carry on that story. Yeah, or for Elwood sort of the pleasure of being an optimist, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I wanted to talk a little, I was thinking that, you know, when you're talking about how the world's awful and terrible, but I think the one, <laughs> it's not so much like redeeming, but I think the one thing that I found interesting was like Turner's relationship with women, mm-hmm. right? Like once he gets out and the ways in which that to him was redemptive in some ways mm-hmm. or that helped him, you know, maybe not like move beyond it, but I think helped him um, think about love and think about being loved and loving other people like in this really beautiful way, right? Like in its sort of, so just kind of, you know, thinking about then like Elwood's relationship with his grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of the woman figure there. So I just wanted to like spend a little bit of time maybe like just talking about that, right? Because obviously it's like a story about, and it was a school for boys and it's about Elwood and Turner, but there's these moments where I think women play like a really important role in keeping them going in these different ways. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the moment when yeah. like we understand that he's actually Jack Turner and not Elwood and he tells his wife, right? Because he knows, you know, uh, page 202 forward. He knows that he is going to have to go to Tallahassee, right? Like he, this is now um, important and vital. And so she'd, you know, he told her that he was in juvie at some point. She accepted that. Mm-hmm. And on page 203, like, he gives her these articles printed out from Nickel. And she's still not connecting it to him, right? She's like, mm-hmm. that's terrible. These people get away with everything. Right. And then, um, you know, he tells her, right, um, you know, and it's, like, so she brief and, mm-hmm. um, and so, like, so underwritten again, right? Elwood, come here, she said. He sat on the couch. He hadn't served his time, as he told her years ago, but ran. Then he told her the rest, including the story of his friend. His name was Elwood, Turner said. They were on the couch for two hours, not counting the 15 minutes halfway through that she spent in their bedroom with the door closed. I have to go, I'm sorry. She returned, her eyes rubbed red, and they picked it up. And I just, like, this whole section I found so heartbreaking, but also so beautiful. Yeah. Um... First, because he was able to tell her, and it's like not even important that we get 
the story the way she got it, mm-hmm. right? In fact, most of that is private and it's between the two of them, mm-hmm. which I think is part of the beauty of this, right? Mm-hmm. That like they give us that sense of privacy between um, Turner and Millie, um, but also that it's clear that she has this strength to deal with it, but that strength has to be rallied. But it's also a strength that, I mean, so like right before your part you read, it says she didn't get it. How could she living in the free world her whole life? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's important that she is somebody who hasn't experienced mm-hmm. this. Right. So but I think it's lovely both in that it's possible for her to like be there for him and understand, even though but she it's hasn't not experienced easy. it. It's not easy. But I think yeah. I, I like I like both that. Right. Like this implication that in some ways. It's only Millie, or like it's somebody like Millie who's able to like provide him support because she hasn't been through that, right? That she has the strength, but also that it's possible for somebody who hasn't been through this to like understand and support and like be there. So I thought that was like a really lovely like sort of moment there. Yeah. Yeah, like on page 205, he talks about how small things stuck and kept her from taking in the entire picture. Right. So like this revelation for her is like for us, like she has to take their whole relationship Mm -hmm. and re-understand these moments and actually see him in a way which he wasn't visible before. And then at the end of 206 uh, um, is the moment where she does the uh, I don't call my husband by his last name. Right. Jack, Jack, Jack. (laughs) And hence Jack Turner. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, on 206, right, um, and this is her, I guess, right, Um, who was he? He was him, the man he had always been. She told him that she understood as much as she was able to understand that first night. He was him. They were the same age. She had grown up in the same country with the same skin. She lived in New York City in 2014. It was hard to remember sometimes how bad it used to be, bending to a colored fountain when she visited family in Virginia, the immense exertion white people put into grinding them down, and then all returned in a rush, set off by set off by tiny things, like sitting on a corner trying to hail a cab, a routine humiliation she forgot five minutes later, because if she didn't, she'd go crazy and set off by the big things, a drive through a blighted neighborhood snuffed out by that same immense exertion or another boy shot dead by a cop. They treat us like subhumans in our own country. Always have, maybe always will. His name didn't matter. The lie was big, but she understood it, given how the world had crumpled him up the more she took in his story. To come out of that place and to make something of himself, to become a man capable of loving her the way he did, to become the man he loved, his deception was nothing compared to what he had done with his life. That's pretty... Are you guys crying? (laughs) I'm not crying. crying. (laughs) I might be crying. (laughs) Crystal's just shaking her head. Well, I mean, I was going to try to, and like in thinking about gender and the women in this story, I was I was trying to think about, you know, Elwood's various relationships. But I think it's hard for me to make any connections because Jack is telling Elwood's story, right? Mm-hmm. And so, especially when we think about Elwood's mom abandoning him, yeah. mm-hmm. and that's the reason, you know, why he's with his grandma. Right. Um, and then trying to make sense of any of Jack Turner's relationships with women I really can't do because I don't actually know Jack Turner's um, relationships with his mother or if he had other women Mm. in his family and so Mm. it's hard for me to say anything definitive about the women in the book beyond Mm. what we get is that the women we do encounter um, are these really supportive both supportive figures but then also figures that push um, the male characters, especially in the in the in the grandma, like toward you know some 
So the word I'm, I'm the word I'm thinking of is like excellence, but mm-hmm, excellence mm-hmm. in the face of knowing this world is not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see her continually pushing Elwood toward that, but then I don't know what Jack experiences exactly. So, um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think about how to consider the women. Um, the women in the story. Um, but maybe we have to think of the the Turner, Jack Turner that we see mm-hmm. in that final part as basically like you guys have been saying, like being a kind of he's a hybrid of Elwood and Turner together in some yeah. way, you know, because he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to be who mm-hmm. he is with mm-hmm. any of the women who he's with had he not Encountered mm. Elwood, right? Right. And so he's yeah. taken on his name, but mm. he hasn't taken on every aspect of Elwood, but he's certainly taken on like ev- the stories that Elwood has told mm. him and the way, yeah. some of the ways that Elwood thinks at least he has mm-hmm. to consider looking at things that way a little bit, you know? Mm. To to yeah. honor, to take someone's name and honor them in that way would mm-hmm. would mean would not mean that you would then reject everything that they were when he talks at the end about like being a man that elwood could have been proud of right right i mean i think especially when you think about the christ imagery that we get with Mm -hmm. elwood with his death it is a really like um you know this is the close i mean we don't see very much religion in the novel um directly Right. So it's this kind of secular version of and it's through Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Like I feel like Elwood has taken on these early 1960s um, imaginings. Right. Of of, uh, King and like what could be. Um, And Jack Turner is trying to live up to that kind of um, forgiveness and um, and love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should yeah. end on that, shouldn't we? Like, yeah. Is this the first time I ever suggested we should end? Like, Dad, let's. Wait, I have another. So we're gonna also end on something, maybe depending on what people say to this question, <laughs> potentially joyful and hopeful, but uh, just something that you're looking forward to in the next few weeks. Something I'm looking forward to. <laughs> The end of the semester. Fair enough. Yeah, me too. End of the term. But also, on Wednesday, I go to Hawaii for the American Studies Association meeting. I am super looking forward to that, and I'm going to be on a panel talking about a Netflix show that everyone should watch. It's called La Casa de las Flores, The House of Flowers, and it's a brilliantly hilarious, but also, like, super queer kind of... um, telenovela-esque, although it's not really, like, show. Um, It's 13 episodes, season one, and season two recently dropped. Um, I haven't gotten through the whole way through season two, so I cannot tell you whether to watch it or not. But season one is definitely worth it. Nice. Okay. Crystal? Yeah, so I was trying to find it really quick. I'm going to, I'm looking forward this week to going to see a play um, with a friend, and I'm trying to find the name of the play, but <laughs> the search on my phone is not being very helpful. Uh, maybe while you're looking, I guess. Yeah, go um, ahead. I think this play is still you happening, but just a shout pipeline? out to go and see Pipeline at Penumbra. We saw it last mm-hmm. weekend. 
and it was really good. I think like the performances. Yeah. I think the performances are like the best part of it. You know, Um, they were excellent. Very very excellent. It's very gripping. Very. And gave us a lot to talk about after. Yeah, we would have had a drink and talk for like an hour and a half or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Crystal, did you find it? Yeah, so the name of the play, um, and this is actually, I think it'll be re- very good, especially since I'm getting kind of exhausted by all of the, by just the current state of blackness in this country. But <laughs> the name of the pl- the play is What to Send Up When It Goes Down. And let me just read the description of it. and says, What to Send Up When It Goes Down is a play, pageant, ritual, homegoing celebration in response to the physical and spiritual deaths of black people as a result of racialized violence. <laughs> Meant to disrupt the pervasiveness of anti-blackness and acknowledge the resilience of black people throughout history. This theatrical work uses parody, song, and movement in a series of vignettes to create space for catharsis reflection cleansing and healing boundaries blur as the audience is asked not to own not only to observe the performance but to participate in the ritual as well mm. so i'm um, participating in that on wednesday and I'm looking yeah, forward wait to wait you said participating in are you going to be in the play no, the, the last sentence says the boundaries blur as the oh. audience is asked to not only observe the performance but to participate as well. So I'm just going to say I'm going to do what the yes. what the description says. She's just giving over to it, like I, not that's like awesome. me. Be like, I'm no not way, doing it. I'm not doing it. Maybe that's also <laughs> the participation. It. So. Cool. That, that sounds amazing. yeah. Y'all to tell us about it. Um, and yeah. I am looking forward to reading Imani Perry's new book called Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Uh-huh. Um, and next up on our podcast, we're going to be reading Toni Morrison's Sula. So go read Sula, but also recommended is the new um, the newish documentary that came about, came out about Toni Morrison called The Pieces I Am. And I think it's on a few different platforms. So I think it, it's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. And yeah. I think it's also on, Amazon. on the Evil Company's website oh, as well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were not supposed to say their name. Um, so yeah, so read the book and check out the documentary and we'll be back at it in about whenever. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) y'all. Bye. You've been listening to a new to you episode of The Drip recorded at my house in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota, where it's cold, snowy and icy, but shouldn't be surprised about that. It's wintertime. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Our mascot in absentia is Bash the Dog, who is currently on sabbatical in Canton, New York. Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. And we hope to have a couple of new episodes out in the next month or so. One's a special driplet on the performance of Claudia Rankin's White Card, which is being performed at Penumbra Theater in February. So go check that out and an episode on one of my favorite novels by the late Toni Morrison, Sula. So, until next time, take care of yourself. Be peace.